This is an ABC podcast. Hello, welcome to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Tonight, the Reserve Bank expects house prices to fall about 15% as interest rates rise over the next two years. Also, we're still waiting for an election date, but the campaigning is underway and Labor says taxpayer-funded ads are promoting the coalition. And Ukraine braces for more gruesome discoveries. Will Russia's actions force the West to step up its role in the conflict? As more atrocities are uncovered, there will be greater pressure on NATO and the West to do more, to provide more equipment, more capabilities to the Ukrainians to enable them to turn the tide, if you like, and impose greater defeats on Russian forces. Well, first tonight, with record low mortgage rates soon to be a thing of the past, how prepared are borrowers for higher repayments? The nation's four biggest lenders are now anticipating interest rates will rise at least four times in the six months after the May federal election. The Reserve Bank is warning of serious risks for borrowers with heavy debts and a meagre savings buffer, but it thinks most Australian households can cope with the forecast rate rises. Oliver Gordon has more. Prospective first homeowner Manar has been on the hunt for her first property for 12 months. It's been interesting, an interesting learning curve. With all four banks now anticipating multiple interest rate hikes this year, Manar has adapted her search. I think it's really important that you are factoring that calculation into your plan and that you are aware of that. With interest rates set to rise at some point in the next 12 months, the Reserve Bank has warned of serious risks for borrowers who are heavily indebted with limited savings buffers. So who fits into this category? Economist Dr Jenny Gordon says it's only a small portion of the population. Well, a lot of those would be people who have used the equity in their home to take out other loans for investment properties. Anybody who's on interest-only repayments because they've sort of stretched themselves in hoping for capital gains might find that um, things are not looking as uh, rosy as they were when they put those arrangements into being. But for most people who are paying off a mortgage on their own home, um, you know, they've got a lot of equity in it and it's, it's a challenge. They'll have to cut back in some areas, but overall, most will uh, not find that you know, it won't be a crisis. They won't be selling their home in order to um, because they can't afford the mortgage. But not everyone is convinced a rate rise would pass by smoothly. Finance expert Martin North says if rates rise 2%, hundreds of thousands of households could be pushed into mortgage stress. Well, across the whole of Australia, if you worked on $600,000, that's not a bad number. And uh, just to give you a bit of an insight, if you were at 2%, your monthly repayments will be $2,218 a month. If it rose by a further 2% to 4%, your repayments will go up to $2,865 a month, which is a 30% increase or an equivalent of $647 per month. How many homes would be pushed into mortgage stress if that happened? Well, at the moment, uh, we've got about uh, 1.5 million households in um, financial flow stress. That's how I measure stress, so money in, money out. And if rates went up another 
2% from where they are today, that will pull around another 350,000 households into difficulty. The Reserve Bank is also modelling that if rates rise 2%, house prices could fall by as much as 15%. As to whether this would lead to a sell-off, the Reserve Bank is measured. Its twice-yearly financial stability review shows the vast majority of borrowers will be able to manage rising repayments as rates increase. Economist Dr Jenny Gordon says while the warnings of rate rise shocks should be heeded, the fact that the majority of households will be able to cope should be remembered. I think the vast majority of borrowers um, shouldn't be terribly scared at all. I mean, I think their household finances might, you know, tighten up a little bit. But uh, overall, most um, households have an awful lot of equity in their home. Uh, unless they're bought very recently, sort of at the end of last year, they will have... Uh, considerable capital gains and, you know, most have some savings and capacity also for uh, second income earners to increase the hours that they work in order to, um, you know, service a slightly higher mortgage. And we are talking about, you know, relatively small increases in the rate. Yes, it's from such a low base, but it's nothing like the uh, the 18% back in the... Um, in the early 1990s and late 1880s. ANU economist Dr Jenny Gordon ending Oliver Gordon's report. Well, in Australia's housing supply crisis, new homes can't be built fast enough. But people who are trying to build are facing another big problem, surging construction costs. Builders are struggling to turn a profit and aspiring homeowners scrambling to find the extra money to pay for agreements they signed years ago. Isabel Masali reports. In Perth's Swan Valley sits a block of land that Michael Armada and his family hoped would have a home on it by now. But after signing building contracts in 2020, there was an unexpected meeting. The cost of bricks were going up. The lack of bricklayers were uh, were an issue because of the pandemic. And he sort of prepared me to give me this $11,000 price increase. And they absolutely did nothing. And then last January of this year, they uh, just emailed me a price increase of $73,000 on top of the 11000 That just felt like, uh, wait a minute, you have done nothing <laughs> and you're giving me a second price increase. He considered walking away from his dream, but eventually he cancelled his contract, refinanced his mortgage and found a new builder. The dream of building wasn't exactly gone, but the dream with this builder looks like it was going to be gone. So starting fresh with a new builder meant even more delays. Yeah, that's correct. More delays and uh, and the loss of the government grant. That's $45,000 gone from the federal and WA building stimulus grants of 2020. But it's not just customers losing money. Data from CoreLogic shows residential construction costs spiked in the last quarter, a level not seen since 2005. It's caused by a surge in new builds and renovations, material shortages, labour shortages and supply chain issues. Danita Warne is the CEO of Master Builders Australia. 
it's predominantly the builders absorbing the cost in what we're couching as the cost and cash flow crunch for builders. And it really depends on the type of contract you have in place. But in most instances, there is some capacity where those costs can't be passed on in some jurisdictions. And as a consequence, we're seeing builders um, either making little money, no money, or even building at a loss. And so there's a lot of activity around, but unfortunately, not a huge amount of money to be made um, simply because they are the ones bearing the costs associated with these significant increases. For some, the cost is too much to bear. The Association of Professional Builders is sounding the alarm again this week, estimating about half of Australian building companies are trading insolvent, meaning they can't pay their bills on time. Professor Stephen Rowley says rising building costs are a big problem for everyone, but he thinks the worst may soon be over. He's from the Australian Housing and Urban Research Institute. It really is quite serious. I mean, a lot of people are going to be under significant financial pressure here, particularly builders who are going to lose money because they haven't been able to factor these price rises in. And of course, individual households will suffer as well. I mean, lots of delays being caused by material shortages. And so again, you as a consumer having to wait longer for a product, uh, we may end up being even more expensive. So a really tough set of circumstances, but I would expect it to ease over time. I think we're kind of at the worst point of it. In the meantime, the phone keeps ringing for Deborah Calamiri from Perth Building Shelter. It's aimed at educating and giving advice to home buyers. So what can you do if you're asked to pay more? The options are limited. It depends how the builder is passing on the increases. Um, a lot of homeowners don't know that the, there are limitations to how the builder can pass the increases on. The options are to seek legal advice. Um, they can come and speak to us and we can guide them in the direction that we feel is going to be best depending on how the builder is passing the increases on. If approached right, we do find that the builder does tend to, I don't like using the word negotiation, but you know, find a solution that, that's kind of a bit more right. But then in saying that, I've also seen where the builders absolutely said, no way, this is it. That's Deborah Camilleri from Perth Building Shelter ending Isabel Masali's report. A bunch of Liberal Party candidates are now locked in after the High Court this afternoon refused to hear a challenge to the party's pre-selection processes that clears the way for the Prime Minister to call the election. But the federal opposition is accusing him of delaying so he can keep spending taxpayer dollars on advertising. Both leaders have spent the week touring electorates and making promises. So what exactly is the government allowed to do in the days before it goes into caretaker mode? Isabel Rowe prepared this report. The ceremonial turning of the first sod alongside two Liberal candidates. Prime Minister Scott Morrison's visit to the safe Labor seat of Corio in Victoria was for all intents and purposes a classic campaign event. And as we turn the soil here today, that is a further demonstration that the strong economy that we've been able to manage through one of the most difficult times, we've been able to keep up the momentum of keeping Australians safe. The government has until the 18th of April to call an election and officially start the campaign. But opposition leader Anthony Albanese says there is a campaign underway. 
because this absurdity of not having the election called so that he can continue to spend taxpayer funds on election ads in the, in the name of the government. One of the ads Mr Albanese is referring to is this one. To secure the future, our plan delivers jobs in health, tech and local manufacturing. Australia's The ad blitz is promoting some of the coalition's economic policies. Griffith University political science professor Anne Tiernan says there are no rules governing what the Prime Minister can do in the weeks before he calls an election. And that means that the caretaker conventions, which govern and restrain executive behaviour um, when an election is called, apply from when the writs are issued and the House is dissolved, not from the period beforehand. So it gives government very substantial incumbency benefits, um, that that fluidity about when the date might be. Uh, and, um, you know, Scott Morrison is not the only Prime Minister uh, to have tried to maximise that advantage. Once the election is called, Professor Tiernan says the official caretaker guidance requires the government to review what ads it's running and remove those that are considered political. If it's something that uh, relates to an election promise, um, the advice from the uh, public service would be, listen, I think we need to moderate this. At the end of the day, the arbiter of the caretaker conventions is the Prime Minister. In the last few weeks, the federal government has also appointed dozens of new board members and heads of organisations, with many former Liberal politicians and staffers selected. Professor Tiernan thinks Australia should have fixed-term parliaments to avoid such situations. And I think, you know, there has been a bit of a pattern of doing this in large numbers over recent elections, and it's always very controversial. And that's why I make the point to fixed-term parliaments. When you know when the date is, um, it's actually, you know, encourages a bit more restraint. And actually, some of the controversy has gone out of it in jurisdictions where that's happened. Asked again today when he'll call the election, Scott Morrison remained tight-lipped. Well, you'll know very soon. Um, How soon? Uh, very soon. How soon? Sunday? <laughs> you'll know when I'm announcing it. Labor leader Anthony Albanese was campaigning today in Adelaide. He's announced a Labor government will return 450 gigalitres of environmental water to the Murray-Darling Basin if it wins the upcoming election. But the plan is already under fire from Federal Water Minister Keith Pitt and the Victorian Water Minister Lisa Neville, who says the states had already committed to only recover that water if it could prove no socio-economic harm to basin communities. Isabel Rowe reporting. You're listening to PM. I'm Samantha Donovan. Ahead are out-of-practice travellers to blame for long queues at Sydney Airport. We'll look at the teething problems as air travel roars back. To the war in Ukraine now and Western nations are continuing to ramp up the pressure on Moscow by imposing sanctions and sending more military equipment. Leaders in Ukraine, though, are warning of more gruesome discoveries in the areas the Russians have retreated from. And in a rare admission, the Kremlin has conceded Russia has sustained significant losses in Ukraine. Gavin Coote prepared this report. 
In the town of Borodyanka, near Kiev, emergency crews are digging through the rubble of apartment blocks, where hundreds of people, including Vadim Zagrenabu's relatives, are feared buried. My mother, my brother, my brother's wife, his mother and father-in-law are still there, as well as other people who were there in the basement. But there were other people on upper floors there and with children too, and I know for sure that they didn't come out. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky says the situation in Borodyanka is much more horrific than nearby Bucha, where the killing of civilians have been widely condemned as war crimes. And the nation's Prosecutor-General, Erna Venediktova, says in Borodyanka there's evidence of Russian war crimes at every turn. We find in Kiev region, Makariv, Borodyanka, Buchel, Hastomel, Irpin, we found uh, 650 dead bodies. From them, it is 40 dead bodies, only kids. Ukrainian officials fear that numbers could rise, though, with scenes of crushed buildings and streets strewn with destroyed cars. Moscow has denied targeting civilians and argued that images of bodies in Bucha have been staged by the Ukraine government to justify more sanctions against Moscow. Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov made the baseless claims during an interview with Sky TV in the UK. It's a bold fake. It's a bold fake and we've been speaking about that for a couple of days, but no one would listen to her. But he admitted significant Russian losses in Ukraine, while also hinting that Moscow is looking for ways to end the war. That's a tragedy. That's a tragedy and uh, our military are doing their best to bring an end to that operation. And we do hope that in coming days, in foreseeable future, this operation will reach its goals or will finish it by the negotiations between Russian and Ukrainian delegations. Moscow has retaliated against Australia's sanctions against Russian politicians and officials. It's announced travel bans on Australian MPs, including Prime Minister Scott Morrison, entering the country. All 120 members of New Zealand's parliament, including Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, have also been added to Russia's blacklist. Meanwhile, Western nations are stepping up their pressure on Moscow. The United States Congress is moving to ban Russia's oil and gas, while the European Union has approved a ban on Russian coal, though that won't take full effect until mid-August. And in a rare move, the United Nations General Assembly has suspended Russia from the UN Human Rights Council, something Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky sees as logical. I am grateful to those states that have supported this. Russia has long had nothing to do with the concept of human rights. Maybe someday that will change. But so far, the Russian state and the Russian military are the greatest threat on the planet to freedom, to human security, to the concept of human rights. After what happened in Bucha, this is obvious. Ukrainians are now bracing for a new Russian offensive in the country's east, where officials warn the window for civilians to leave the area is narrowing. Gavin Coote reporting. So what will happen next in the conflict? Dr Malcolm Davis is a senior analyst in defence strategy and capability at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Look, I think what's happening is that the Russians are trying to regroup and rebuild their capabilities in the east of Ukraine. So they've withdrawn uh, from around Kyiv. They're trying to redeploy forces to the east of the Donbass. Their forces are in pretty bad shape after a mauling given to them by the Ukrainian forces. And the Ukrainians continue to attack in counteroffensives. So what we're in now is a race between 
Ukraine's ability to, to continue those counteroffensives and continue to keep the Russians under attack versus Russia's ability to rebuild their forces and re-equip their logistics support in preparation for a second offensive in the east. Do you think the number of soldiers being killed is really making Russia rethink its aims or approach? I think in the short term, yes. Um, that's why they have withdrawn around Kiev and some other nearby areas. But ultimately, in the long term, Putin is determined to dismember Ukraine and remove the government. So I think what they're going to do now is a two-stage approach whereby they initially seek to defeat Ukraine in the east, in the Donbass, and control the east, and then at a later date uh, push forward into an offensive towards Kiev again. Do you think Ukraine can win and repel the Russians? I think if the West gives Ukraine sufficient uh, material support in the form of heavy armour and in the form of large numbers of uh, missile systems such as the Javelin and the Stinger continues to provide them with intelligence support, then potentially, yes, what, what the Ukrainians can do is, if not win, they can fight the Russians to a standstill. Uh, and at that point, um, there's two possibilities. Either the Russians will sit down and agree to some sort of negotiated settlement or the Russians will escalate uh, to weapons of mass destruction. So there's danger in both, both paths. If we have a negotiated settlement, then part of negotiation, of course, is concessions. And if we give concessions to the Russians, that may embolden Putin to try again at a later date. Of course, if they escalate, if they use weapons of mass destruction, then I think everyone understands the significance of that. When you say weapons of mass destruction, are you talking nuclear weapons or...? Potentially nuclear weapons, a low-yield tactical nuclear weapon. But I think it's much more likely to see a large-scale use of chemical weapons. In terms of nuclear, the Russians have a strategy called escalate to de-escalate, whereby they, they detonate a small nuclear weapon as a warning signal to the adversary to basically surrender and as a, a warning against NATO not to interfere. That's a possibility uh, because the Russians may feel that they have what's known as escalation dominance at the tactical nuclear level uh, and also because uh, NATO is being rather vague in terms of how they would respond to escalation to either chemical or nuclear. The last nuclear weapon that was ever used in anger was Nagasaki in 1945. What would that mean for the world if that, Russia took if, that option? If even even a low-yield nuclear weapon being used in anger would fundamentally change the international order because it would break the nuclear taboo against use of nuclear weapons. Uh, I, I don't see how NATO could avoid not intervening directly at that point. I think it would be a fundamental change to the international order if a nuclear weapon was used in anger by Russia. Over the last week or so, we've heard the shocking reports of atrocities in towns like Bucha. What impact do the war crimes allegations have on the way things are going to play out now? That's just going to make it more difficult to have a negotiated settlement. So I don't think that negotiated settlement path is really open at this stage. They may continue to talk, but really I don't see a possibility that there's going to be a settlement there. As more atrocities are uncovered, there will be greater pressure on NATO and the West to do more, to provide more equipment, more capabilities to the Ukrainians to enable them to turn the tide, if you like, and impose greater defeats on Russian forces. I think also there will be much greater pressure on certain European countries to stop dilly-dallying around in terms of cutting off the oil and natural gas supplies, because every time the Europeans buy oil and natural gas from Russia, it's funding those atrocities that you're seeing happening in towns like Butcher.
Dr Malcolm Davis from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. The mining giant Rio Tinto is shutting out the Russian aluminium company Rusal from a jointly owned Queensland refinery. The Russian company is owned by one of the Kremlin's favourite industrialists and that's put, put Rio Tinto's connection to it under scrutiny as Australia ratchets up sanctions on Moscow. John Daly has more. Rio Tinto says it's taken full control of an alumina refinery in the Queensland port city of Gladstone, pushing aside the Russian aluminium heavyweight, Rusal. Sanctions against Rusal's founder, the high-profile oligarch Oleg Deripaska, and an Australian government ban on aluminium exports to Russia forced Rio's hand. Dan Gosher from the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility has cautiously welcomed the move. We're still looking for further clarity from Rio Tinto that uh, Roussel and, and the two oligarchs that are heavily invested in that company don't stand to financially benefit uh, from the, the joint venture. But if, but if that's if they can clarify that that is the case, then it looks like they have resolved the problem for the time being. Roussel will keep its 20% stake in Queensland Alumina Limited, but Rio gets to keep and sell its 20% share of the alumina produced from the refinery. At current market prices, that's worth more than $420 million dollars. This arrangement is likely temporary while sanctions are in place. Dan Gosher says Rio's ties with Rusal will continue to be awkward to explain to shareholders. Longer term, Rio may come under further scrutiny about that relationship with Rusal and um, you know its proximity to the to the Russian government. And that those types of questions are being raised at, at companies all over the world. Rio Tinto told the ABC it now has 100% governance over the refinery and says its focus remains on continued operations, which are a major employer in the Gladstone community. Gladstone Council Deputy Mayor Khan Goodluck says Rio taking the reins provides certainty for local workers. It's obviously a complex situation when you've got, you know, global conflicts. And uh, all I know from a, a local perspective, mate, it's great to see that Rio Tinto has been able to navigate their way through this. So could Rio just take permanent full ownership of the refinery without having to pay out Russell? The German government has reportedly seized a Russian-owned energy company that owns critical infrastructure. The Australian government could do something similar here, but not without a big legal battle. ANU international law professor Donald Rothwell. Any uh, initiative by the Commonwealth government which might result in the seizure or acquisition of property in Australia will immediately run up against questions that sit within the Constitution, and that is any Commonwealth acquisition of property uh, must be on just terms, which means that compensation must be paid for any property that is acquired. And if compensation is not paid, if it's just, I guess, an act of, of brute force given geopolitical tensions, what could happen after that? Well, inevitably, an acquisition of that type would result in litigation uh, before the Australian courts. Rio Tinto says it will retain full control of the Queensland refinery until further notice. John Daly with that report. Australians are getting back into air travel, but it seems many passengers lucky enough to be getting away for a break are having a rough ride. For the last few days, queues for check-in and security at Sydney Airport have ended up out the door and into the car park. And to add insult to injury, the Qantas boss, Alan Joyce, is blaming customers for the chaos, saying after COVID lockdowns, they're not match fit. Carly Williams has more. 
chaos at Sydney Airport. Like all the way around the terminal. The past few days, people have stood in lines stretching through the terminal, out the door and onto the footpath. Video posted on Twitter shows one outdoor queue running the length of the building and spilling into the car park. Customers are not impressed. Oh, it's crazy. And looking like this arrangement, I think it's, it's really confusing and don't know what to do. It is absolute chaos. Brisbane man Ben Kefford was caught up in the delays while trying to fly out of Sydney. A lot of the kiosks weren't working. It was hard to find one that actually did work. A lot of the bag drops weren't working as well. And then the line for security was extremely long. It wasn't just delays in the terminal. Ben Kefford's colleagues were bumped off flights due to the plane being overbooked. And his plane sat on the tarmac at Sydney Airport for two hours before it took off. The pilot had come over the phone and said that, you know, we were waiting on an international flight and it should only be five minutes. So I don't think that they had any idea what was going on. Sydney Airport has apologised for the delays, blaming COVID staff shortages. Qantas boss Alan Joyce has also apologised, but is throwing passengers under the bus. I think our customers are not match fit. I went through the airport um, on Wednesday and people forget they need to take out their laptops they have to take out their aerosols. Qantas has told PM a high level of staff absenteeism, 18%, added to the problem and that the airline is operating at 110% of pre-COVID domestic capacity. Dr Crystal Zhang is Associate Professor of Aviation at RMIT University. She says queue management is the responsibility of the airport and the airlines and both parties need to collaborate to avoid awful weeks like this one. We know the kind of information about travellers who booked the flight is not necessarily shared by the airlines and the airport. So that kind of information exchange perhaps is still lacking. Dr Crystal Zhang wants to see more investment in tech at the airport. Certus Security Australia, the security contractor at Sydney Airport, told the ABC it's dealing with staff shortages due to the close contact isolation rules and it's working to build up its team. As for travellers copping the blame for being out of practice, Ben Kefford isn't having it. But a lot of the issues that I faced in my experience were past the security lines. You know, having delays and sitting on the on the tarmac for two hours, you know, having all the tech breakdowns is not really a security line issue either. I think there's a lot of questions. Air passenger Ben Kefford ending Carly Williams' report. And that's PM for this week. PM's producer is David Cody. Technical production by Scott Johnston. I'm Samantha Donovan. The PM team with Linda Mottram will be back on Monday evening. And you can join Linda for this week on the radio tomorrow morning and via podcast. Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. This controversy surrounds Brian Houston, the founder of the global megachurch Hillsong. Attention has turned to how the Australian built his multi-million dollar empire. Today, 7.30, is Agar Cohen on Hillsong's property grab and how some Australian churches handed over everything. Look for ABC News Daily on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.